0: Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's attempt to study for his comprehensive exams. Studying for your orals or your comps is, is really hard, and probably the most obvious way in which it's hard is that you have to read a ton. Three books a day is onerous for even book lovers like me. But as I've been going through all of my reading, i found that the actual reading isn't the hardest part. The hardest part is in synthesizing the books together after the reading is done. Um, at the end of the day, you're tired, you're, you know, kind of in the weeds of each individual author and each individual book, and sometimes it's hard to knit together all of the stuff that you've learned. But it's the most important part. We're reading all these books not so that we're walking libraries who are able to tell you exactly what, you know, this particular author's argument is about the development of the South Sea Company in 1719. No, we're learning all this stuff so that we can be teachers. So that we can teach history by making large narratives about historical change. I think that I had one of these moments of clarity yesterday. One of these moments in which a thing that was not clear to me suddenly became clear. When things slid into place. Uh, when I was able to make a narrative of something I had been having trouble making a narrative of. And I'm not going to lie, I I think that over the past couple days, as I've been reading about 19th century British capitalism, I've been failing to make this synthesis. I've been kind of bogged down in details or too focused on particular books. And I I think that's because I'm not an expert. I'm mainly a historian of 18th century Britain. Um, I'm most interested in everyday life and society and technology and the environment. And so these big moves of gigantic political actors about finance and, you know, insurance and all this wonderful stuff is alien to me. And frankly, I get bored of politics. Uh, I barely know who prime ministers are. If you ask me who Palmerston was, who I think every British historian probably should know, I would tell you he's a prime minister, and that's about it. I can barely keep Gladstone and Disraeli straight. And so when I look for explanations of 19th century British capitalism, I go to my old stalwarts. I go to the explanations that I choose for everything. Um, For me, 19th century British capitalism was a story of a process that was much more familiar to me. The unleashing of the free energy of coal deposits, this massive unleashing of productive forces, had to have something really important to do with the massive growth in the British Empire. Remember those three important factors that I said all played into the rise of British global capitalism, machines, finance, and the firm? Well, for me, a couple days ago, the most important one of those triad was the machine. But yesterday I read a book that might not have changed my mind, but gave me an alternative narrative that's helping me frame what's been happening in the 19th century. And that is the legendary Kane and Hopkins British Imperialism. Uh, this book has kind of a funny history. It started off as a pair of uh, articles and then it kept on growing over the past, you know, what, uh, 35 years or so until now, it's a doorstopper book of 700 pages. Uh, a new edition has just been published, if you're curious. For Cain and Hopkins, the big story of British capitalism is gentlemanly capitalism. For them, the story is about the rise of international services like finance, insurance, real estate, and trade, and the super elites who lived mainly in London who provided it. The story of empire is not the story for them of new markets being burst open for British manufactured goods but rather new markets being created for British financial goods so I'm going to recap their story and at the end offer a little bit of criticism of it before we jump in let's just get a cast of the main characters and don't worry there's only three and they're not actually people Um, the big characters are the landed wealth Think of this as like old aristocrats who have manor houses and get most of their money from rents of land. Think Downton Abbey. These guys have that stereotypically gentlemanly ethos where they don't want to work and they want to stay rich. The second member of this cast of characters is the moneyed wealth. Um, Think of merchant princes uh, or a guy in a top hat who goes to work at a bank who's a stockbroker who has dinner with the ambassador of Tunisia. And the third group are the industrialists. We've met some of these guys before, guys like Josiah Wedgwood, that potter who revolutionized the British China industry. Uh, And these people get their wealth from their investment in capital, their investment in factories, which they more often than not run. Canaan Hopkins' story begins like our story yesterday did with the founding of the Bank of England. But this is a slightly different story. Here, the creation of a bunch of government debt with the chartered trading companies and the Bank of England represented the slow union of the moneyed elites and landed wealth after the political upheavals of the 17th century. This debt created stability by making the landed interests who invested in government debt and the moneyed interests who invested in government debt and who managed this government debt have the same priority. You had the Navigation Acts, which meant that uh, British trade could only be done with British ships, which combined with bounties on exported grain meant that there was a lot of money to be made both from agriculture and shipping this agriculture, both for the landed elites who got most of their money from grain sales and from the London financiers who did a lot of insurance. And, of course, we can't forget war. The 18th century was basically a story of constant war against France and with every single war that happened, the government debt bloomed and all these people who had funds in the government debt gained from it. Those manufacturers who I love so much, that story of all these geniuses up in the north who are making steam engines and you know, spinning jennies and who are worrying about machines, they're still on the sidelines. The super elite don't like them because they work. And also they live in unfashionable cities like Manchester and Birmingham. Uh, And finally, their, their factories were not great investment opportunities. Not when you had things like the British government debt, which always returned the same rate of return year after year after year. Or when you had land, which not only gave you a steady rate of return, but was also a place to build an awesome manor house on. These new manufacturing industries was not funded by the giant pool of money that was developing in London. It was funded by local networks of financiers, by, you know, northern capitalists who are not a key part of Cain and Hopkins' story. There's a turning point in this 18th century capitalism in 1815, and three reasons happen to change what is called the old corruption. First is that everybody's freaked out by the political revolutions that happen. Britain loses America, of course, and also it watches the government of France fall with a lot of bloody guillotining. The elites that we're talking about here, the politicians and the dukes and the moneyed interests and the landed interests, do not want to be the next victim of the guillotine, and so they have to figure out a way of responding to the challenges that were made with the French and the American revolutions. They need to give old corruption a facelift. The second reason why there's a turning point is that after 1815, there's a lot less European war. Of course, Britain still does war-like things, but it's a hell of a lot less expensive. And while this seems like a good thing, it's a bad thing for the moneyed interests who get their money from government debt. If there's less war, there's less debt. And so the giant pool of money starts to need to find a new place to go. Finally the population was growing. And while this was a great thing if you're an 18th century mercantilist who believes that the wealth of a nation is in the amount of people you have, this was kind of scary for the 19th century because they could see that stocks of food were not increasing fast enough to meet up with the population. So to solve this, we turned to free trade. First, the giant pool of money starts to find other outlets, and the good outlets are in other countries' national debts. So you get the rise of the trading in other sovereign debt in London, which we talked about yesterday. Secondly, free trade, the abolishment of all tariffs, would solve Britain's food problem because Britain, which had a ton of money, could just buy it from other countries. But this would also in a way sell out the landed interests because the landed interests got a ton of their money from grain sales. So if you opened up trade to all grain, then the rate of return on land would decline. But this is what happened. The big date here is 1846 and the repeal of the Corn Law. And this is when free trade started to happen. And after 1850, you get a change in this gentlemanly capitalism. You get a change in the atmosphere of the attitude of colonialism. What you get is a new moral order, and that moral order is minimal government at home, paternalism abroad, indirect taxes, and the sanctification of consumption. This should seem kind of familiar to you all after listening to the past couple podcasts. But the thing that Cain and Hopkins do that's so different is that they change our view of why this is good for the elites. The old view, or the view that I was having in the past couple days, was that this was good for the elites because it provided markets for all of those manufactured goods. But Cain and Hopkins say that this new kind of empire was good because it based the international trading system in London. It was London that people needed to go to if they were, say, from Turkey, or India or Egypt, or Argentina, if they wanted to raise a loan. It was England where people had to go if they wanted to buy raw materials on the market. It was England where people had to go if they wanted to get information on how to start a new factory. And so London became this entrepot, this center of global finance, where in the square mile of the city of London, Everything in the global economy happened, from the setting of exchange rates, to foreign debt, to setting of commodity prices. And this was the dream of financiers, not industrialists. Industrialists gained from this system, but it was the financiers who gained the most. It was them who got the lion's share of the prosperity. The landed elites did pretty well, too, but it was the moneyed interests who really rise to the fore, after 1850. So let's look out how this plays in the formal and informal empires. In a place like India, my story, the old story, is that India was useful for the empire because it was a place where you could sell manufactured goods. If you colonized India, you got a market for Lancashire cottons, and you also got a place where you could grow the raw materials that Lancashire cottons were made from. But for Canaan Hopkins, India is useful for the elites. It's the place where the Second Sons could go to and play in the game of government, which is, you know, the main hobby of these elite landed interests. They could go out and hunt and get rich and drink and have friends and legislate, which is what a British gentleman wants to do. And they would make money by lending and trading, by participating in the financial system. The manufactured goods are just an added bonus. And then let's look at the informal empire where this makes even more sense. In a place like Argentina, which had huge rates of uh, British investment, this was driven by the search of the giant pool for money for high rates of return. It's a search for the creation of Bank of England stock abroad. And so the system of British imperialism was developed not to exploit natives by making factories there, but rather to exploit natives by creating financial systems that looked like British financial systems that gave profitable investment opportunities for the super-riches who lived in London. And London again became the center of this world. London was the place where the wider empire came to deal stuff, to ship stuff, to insure stuff, to hash out diplomatic problems, and to send kids to school. The real test of Cain and Hopkins' theory is what happens when the elites have to decide between the manufacturing interests and the moneyed interests. And for them, when it comes down to this choice, the British elites choose the financial interests. England, Britain right now, is not a country of manufacturing, but it is still a country of finance. I want to temper this story a little bit by showing a couple things of what this giant pool of money theory leaves out, and how it slowly learned to love the Industrial Revolution. So there's three things that this giant pool of money invested in that Cain and Hopkins kind of don't touch on that are really important, and those are railroads and steamships, guns, and the Telegraph. So the problem of investing in industry for the giant pool of money in the 18th century isn't just that it was dirty or it was done by, you know, elites who weren't super elite, but it was small and it was also competitive. And so it didn't generate a high rate of return. If you're a super rich person in London who has like £20,000 to invest in, you're not going to go off and invest in a Lancashire cotton mill because there's not £20,000 to invest in, you know? And also if you did that, you wouldn't necessarily get a good rate of return because there's a ton of other cotton mills who are generating profit. The solution to this is railways. Railways provide an opportunity for the giant pool of money to invest in manufactured goods. Why? Because railways were so expensive and because they had such a great rate of return once they were built, they served as kind of like manufactured Bank of England stock. You could keep on investing money in them. They would take all the money you had and once built, they promised to be incredibly profitable and so to keep on delivering a steady rate of return the same way that Bank of England stock did. You know, remember that in 1845, right after it becomes easy for companies to incorporate, there is a railroad boom, a railroad bubble, where people, this giant fool of money, flows into the new railway systems. And of course, the creation of railways and then steamships creates national and then international markets that allow British finance to further expand. The second thing that I want to point out is guns. So a huge part of what the giant pool of British money was funding was foreign debt, sovereign debt, the debt of nations. What was a country like France spending this money on? Or a country like Brazil? Well, they were spending it on the same thing that governments in the 18th century were spending their money on, war and defense. And a huge part of this story is the creation of the British armaments industry, uh, which became one of the key sectors of British manufacturing at the end of the 19th century. I can't say more on this because I haven't read any books on it, and none are on my list, so I might not be able to say anything more on it for this entire podcast. But think of the giant pool of money as flowing to the global arms industry as well, which then as now is highly profitable. The final thing that the giant pool of money flowed into that became incredibly important for it was the telegraph. The telegraph, like the railroad, was super expensive, and also it helped to knit together financial markets, but it was almost maybe even more important for the rise of global capital than the railway because the telegraph allowed for information to flow instantly, or nearly instantly, from different capital markets. And this allowed London in the 1870s to become the money market of the entire world. Thanks very much for joining me on Making of a Historian today. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for making the theme music, and Duncan Barton for making the icon. Uh, If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and review us on iTunes and share us on social media. And if you want to look at the books that I read today, uh, check us out at our webpage at historian.live. I will see you guys tomorrow.